Beloved, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 uh, this morning. If you'll please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and efficacious word. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles." Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Your word is filled with judgment and salvation, with law and gospel. And we pray that as your law and gospel are proclaimed today, that we would truly be under the conviction of our sins and that we would look to Christ alone as the one who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Oh God, would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts by your spirit that like Lydia alongside the river hearing Paul preach that the eyes of our hearts would be opened, that we believe the gospel and abide in Christ alone for our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus didn't come into this world merely to be a good example, merely to pass along to us information, merely to give us uh, some helpful advice for our lives. He didn't come into this world to be our life coach. He came into this world to be our crucified and risen Savior. Amen? It's important that we recognize this. So much of liberal Christianity embraces a Christ who doesn't even exist who's been made up in the minds of those who would seek to sanitize the Christian uh, message, to sanitize the cross, to make nothing of what Christ actually did on the cross, and to uh, speak of his resurrection as if it doesn't even really matter if he rose from the dead, as long as he's risen from the dead in your heart. But all of this is a clear attack on the gospel. And people within the walls of churches are hearing these kinds of messages even this morning and believing them in their hearts. 
we know that there were those, even in the first century Corinthian church, who did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. No. No, it couldn't be, Pastor. Look with me at verse 12. Here's Paul. He writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's writing to the church at Corinth. Could you imagine if I stood up here today and and said something like this to you? I know there are some of you who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, members of Christ's church. You think, well, Pastor John has lost it. Here is the thing. Paul and Peter and others in the New Testament say things like this. I have no trouble reminding you. Paul says it here at the beginning of this section. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of what? Of what? The gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Wait a minute. Paul was at the church of Corinth. He was preaching to them for months on end. And do they really need to be reminded of this? Yes. And so do we. So do you, dear Christian. So do I. We need these glorious reminders. We remember that the apex of Jesus' humiliation came during Passion Week. He was betrayed. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was falsely accused and arrested. Then after a mockery of a trial, he was brutally beaten and scorned and condemned to death by crucifixion. We meditated on this extensively on Friday evening. While Jesus hung on the cross, the crowds ridiculed him. The chief priests scoffed at him. And some surely would have looked upon him with bewilderment. Finally, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And he breathed his last. The soldiers wanted to make sure that he was dead, pierced his side with a spear, and out flowed blood and water. Then Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader who was a secret follower of Christ. Look what just happened to Christ. He was scared. And so he bravely asked for the body of Jesus to put Jesus in his own newly fashioned tomb carved out of the rock, and he put him in there. And it was a a dark day for many who had hoped that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He had come to conquer sin, hell, and death, and Satan. But it appeared that he was the one who was conquered by the forces of evil. But then something astonishing happened. Something astonishing happened. Something death-defying happened. Luke records this event in chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, if you'd like to turn there with me. Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Three times in Christ's public ministry, he explicitly said this. I will be betrayed. I will be taken into the hands of evil men. I will be killed and I will be raised on the third day. Three times clearly he said this. And at other times in various ways he alluded to his resurrection. They remembered his words, verse 8. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Now listen to verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Think about that. These ladies, several of them, come to share of what they had just seen. Not just one, several. And the disciples did not believe. Do you think God is patient with you and your doubts and your struggles and your fears, dear Christian? He is. He is, just as he was patient with his own disciples. The ones who we sometimes hold up as these great holy men. They were just men called for a special purpose. But here we see men who doubted and struggled. Verse 12, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And then on to verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself suddenly stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. He wasn't eating fish primarily because he was hungry, but to show the disciples that he was not some kind of figment of their imagination, some kind of vision or hallucination. He was there in the flesh, risen from the dead. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise and rise from the dead 
and a third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's powerful, is it not, to hear and sequence this wonderful account of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the implications of that resurrection. A resurrection that defied death, that conquered Satan, that vanquished hell. And yet, even here in the Corinthian church, about 30 or so years past these events, there are members of the Corinthian church doubting the resurrection. There are various reasons for that. We won't get, get into uh, them this morning, but they were doubting. They were struggling with this. And so, so Paul wants to remind them of the centrality and veracity and necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as one of our members came to me this morning after Sunday school, where we kind of focused on various objections to the resurrection, he said, Pastor John, why is it so hard for people to believe in the resurrection if they believe verse 1 of the Bible? God created the heavens and the earth. Is it impossible for him to rise from the dead? And in him to raise us by grace through faith? Well, of course not. So as we unpack this profoundly significant text, one of the most important texts in the Bible, I want to encourage us all to pay close attention to what Paul is teaching us here. The first thing we see here is a preeminent gospel. A preeminent gospel. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel, Paul emphasizes here, is of first importance. It's the foundation of the church. Sometimes we get this mixed up and we think there are other things that are of first importance in the church. Some issue that I am focused on. Some thing going on in society or in the culture that I'm involved with. Something in my own life. Those are the things sometimes we think are of first importance. But they never are. Whatever we think might be of first importance must be put aside to make this of first importance always. The gospel. This is what brings unity. This is what brings humility. This is what brings repentance. This is what buoys up true saving faith. It's of first importance. It's the foundation of the church, the, the bedrock of the Christian life. But many in the Corinthian church had strayed from it. They were, they were confused. Indeed, the Corinthian church was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? It'd be awful to have your first call be the first church of Corinth. Oh, great. Thank you. I got to share some things with you about this church, though, before you go. I mean, this is the kind of thing I was asking before I uh, took the, the church that was only a year and a half old, had been planted a, for a year and a half, 
And the pastor was leaving. This is in Douglasville, Georgia, my former church. And I remember calling him from Edinburgh because the search committee reached out to me. And I said, okay, I'll be glad to consider this. And I, I called the man who was there for a year and a half. Of course I did. And I said this, what's wrong with this church? He said, there's nothing wrong with this church. I said, yeah, seriously, what's wrong with this church? You were there for a year and a half. Now you're leaving. There's something going on there. He said, no, there's nothing going on. That's great. The, the, the new elders are wonderful. I said, seriously, what's wrong with the elders? Nothing's wrong with the elders. They're wonderful. They're, they, they love the Lord. They want to see this church grow according to Scripture. And, and I kept asking and asking. Finally, I realized he really was leaving because he was called somewhere else. Very clearly, he was called somewhere else. To Tuscaloosa, where there's real need for gospel ministry amongst that football nation there. Amen. Yes, amen. But here, imagine what you'd hear about the Corinthian church. It'd all be true. It would all be true. There was strife. There was division. There was pride. There was adultery. There was sexual perversion. There was loads of confusion over the sacraments and the spiritual gifts. You name it, it was probably a struggle and a problem in the church in Corinth. And as we've seen already, many members of the church in Corinth were confused about the nature of the resurrection of Christ and its correlation to the resurrection of God's people. In fact, many of them did not believe in the bodily resurrection at all, believing along with the culture and false religions that only the soul or spirit would reach the afterlife since the body, since the material body, along with all material things, was corrupt. Some of them, like the Sadducees, may not even have believed in a resurrection or an afterlife at all. And if this is the case, if, Paul states in verse 32, the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's essentially hedonism, which we are seeing in our own culture today as the, church, as the culture becomes more and more unchurched more and more disconnected from reality and from Christian ethics. This is the way our culture is embracing now the new hedonism. If the resurrection is not true, Paul writes, then the entire Christian faith crumbles. It's a worthless myth to be rejected. So Paul sought to correct them and to bring them back to what he first preached to them and what they had first received, the gospel. The unadulterated gospel, he reminded them of the very foundation of the gospel. The very core of the Christian faith is the historical and bodily death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that through faith in Christ, through faith in his death and resurrection, sinners are forgiven. Sinners are set free from the tyranny of sin and guilt. In Christ, we are delivered from the second death and shall one day be raised bodily unto everlasting life. Amen? That is the Christian gospel. You cannot remove any part of that and call yourself a Christian. J. Gresham Machen, of course, wrote that famous book, Christianity and Liberalism, making the point that the true Christian faith is something very different to that which is being purported by the liberal mainline church. 
This is the gospel. This is not the gospel. This is the true Christian faith, historically and biblically grounded. This is not. It's the point he was making. It's the point we need to make over and over again today, as so many are confused. And so Paul opens up this section by stating, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You see, Paul is reminding us here very clearly that we are not saved by good works. We saw that on Friday night as we considered the thief on the cross. We know he wasn't saved by good works because he had none. We're not saved by good works. Paul is reminding them and us of this. We're not saved by some secret Gnostic knowledge or some kind of subjective super spirituality. No, we are not saved through our good intentions or our sentimental notions. We're not saved by family bloodlines or social connections. No, peace with God only comes through faith in a crucified and resurrected Savior. You may have noticed in verses 3 and 4 in our text that they have a kind of creedal structure. Earlier, we confessed the Apostles' Creed. Here, we have a kind of creedal structure. It was likely a part of an ancient creed in the early church, highlighting the the, the foundational elements of the gospel for every Christian believer. It was something that could be recited very quickly. Maybe these were just the bare bones of it and there were more, but, but here we have this kind of summary of, of, of the gospel. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, earlier we confessed the Apostles' Creed where we confessed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and the third day rose again from the dead. We confessed something similar in the Nicene Creed. These ancient ecumenical creeds were written so that the church would not forget or abandon those preeminent doctrines, those doctrines of first importance. When we abandon, or if we abandon, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we fundamentally abandon the historic Christian faith. Believe not otherwise. I was mentioning in Sunday school that yesterday I saw a a tweet. It was kind of a graphic tweet. It was snapped by someone. It was a tweet of a seminary president who was saying it doesn't really matter if Christ rose bodily from the grave, as long as he's risen in your heart, something to that effect. And that extraordinary, profound theologian, Hulk Hogan, responded to the tweet and said, Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen bodily, truly risen from the dead. But here we see in this statement, this creedal-like statement, that first of all, Christ died. Notice there it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die. He died for our sins. He died for your sins and my sins. 
He didn't die merely as an example of humility and love to, to teach us how to be forgiving and kind to our enemies, as some would teach today. No, that, that Jesus is a, perhaps a victim of the, the petty jealousy of the, the first century religious leaders. Oh no, these things are not, not why Jesus died. He died as a part of God's plan of redemption. Christ died for our sins. It was a part of his saving purposes. That Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the sinless one, would become an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 8.32 says, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? John 3.16. Kids, you know this. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. Acts 20, 28, Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to care for the church, the church which Christ obtained with his own blood. He died, and he died for our sins. J. Gresham Machen wrote this, Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements, joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, There is no Christianity. What happened at the cross? A purchase in full of our redemption. A purchase in full of our redemption. Your debt, dear one, was paid not in part, but in full. If your debt was paid... 98%. If your debt was paid 99.9%, you would be headed to a Christless eternity, and so would I. Christ paid it all. He paid it all. He paid the full debt. Our sins were nailed to the cross, and Christ redeemed us from Satan's destruction. He bore the wrath of God in our place. He set us free from guilt and condemnation. He provides for us mercy and forgiveness. Christ has restored our fellowship with God through his death. But notice he also says here, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The entire Old Testament was anticipating this death of the Messiah for our sins. There's the exodus and the Passover when the lamb's blood was smeared on the doorframe so that the angel of death would pass over the homes of the Israelites. How about the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of which pointed forward to the sacrificial death of Christ for sins? And what about passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which so clearly anticipate the atoning nature of the death of Christ? Isaiah 53 Verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, obeyed the law perfectly, and then as a perfect law keeper, died for your sins? Paul mentions, secondly, that Jesus was buried. Why mention the burial of Jesus here? Why is this so important in this ancient creedal statement? Well, it's to underscore that Jesus really died. He wasn't just passed out when he was taken down from the cross. He was dead. The soldier pierced his side with a spear and water and blood flowed out. The Heidelberg Catechism asks in question 41, quote, Why was he buried? Answer, his burial testified that he had really died. Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Jesus was buried. And then, Paul says, he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. He is risen, and it is upon the resurrection of Christ that all of our hope is founded. It's why Christians face suffering with courage because of the hope of the resurrection. It's why in 1415, when Jan Hus, whose image is on my wall in my study, went to the Council of Constance under safe conduct of the emperor and shared his biblical views about a number of doctrinal points and they reneged on their safe conduct and led him out to a field and set him aflame. And he sang psalms as the flames consumed him. How can it be? Resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. There were those who, with strong and bold words, would sometimes say to their opponents to their enemies while the flames were kindling and beginning to consume them, they would say something like this, these flames will consume my flesh only for a few minutes and I will die and enter glory. But if you remain in your sin, you will be consumed by flames forever. Repent and believe the gospel. Not some message of works salvation or I'm doing my best salvation because all of that falls short of God's righteous standard. God couldn't be God unless he had a righteous standard, right? And he does. And that righteous standard is Christ. And he sent him into the world for us to live the life we fail to live and to die on the cross, that death that we deserve. He took it on himself for our salvation. All of our hopes are realized in him. What is interesting is how central the resurrection is to apostolic preaching. In the Bible, the resurrection is not ancillary to the witness of uh, the early church. It's, it's a central and foundational part. Of the, it's a part of the essence of the, the proclamation of the gospel and the apostles. In fact, the book of Acts, as we learned a couple of years ago, as we walked through verse by verse, we saw that the book of Acts is, is made, made up of sermons. 
so much of the book of Acts is, is the proclamation of the gospel in sermon, sermonic form. And what we see in all of those sermons is a focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 22. The apostle Peter, the one who was cowering in fear, who was denying Christ three times to people who weren't even important in society. He was denying his Lord. He was earlier making these proclamations. Lord, I will go with you and I will die with you. And Jesus said, no, you won't. You're going to deny me three times. Jesus said, I would rather die than deny you. And then he denied him three times, full of fear. And here, after Pentecost, filled with the Spirit of God, Peter stands up and begins to proclaim to the very ones who were responsible for putting Christ on the cross. Peter, you must understand, had to think in his heart, I am likely going to die for preaching this sermon right now. But I'm going to do it because Christ is worthy. He says this as he stands, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says, and again, this is according to the scriptures that Jesus was raised, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." And then he goes on to say, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. David wasn't writing about himself in that psalm. He was writing about Jesus about the resurrected one who was to come, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32, Acts 2, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Who is this preaching this sermon? It's the Apostle Peter, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with boldness and courage, preaching the resurrection of Christ. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised by the Father. And He is both Lord and Christ, reigning over all. And those who believe in Him, those who rest their faith, not in themselves, but in the person and saving work of Christ will receive forgiveness of sins, 
righteousness and everlasting life. Do you believe this? Hundreds of millions, indeed billions of people have believed this since the resurrection of Christ. People are embracing today with great confidence mindless absurdities based on nothing. Believing that creation was made not by God, but by nothing. That nothing came from nothing. And people are like, ooh, yes. Let's write an essay on that. That's brilliant. People are confused on multiple levels in our society today. Proclaiming wild absurdities with many nodding and agreeing and signing forms and agreeing to push these ideologies. Rather than saying, no, this is absurd. It defies common sense and it defies the truth that God has set forth in his word. There is such a thing as objective truth, beloved. It is found in God's word. God does not give us arbitrariness. He gives us himself. He gives us his son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so let me ask you, do you believe in this Jesus? Is he your life and salvation? If he is, please hear this. If Jesus is your life and your salvation, that means that you are born again. That means that he holds first place in your heart, even though at times you let other things drift in, capture your attention, maybe and draw you away at times. You'll still say he is preeminent. He is my Lord. And I'm living in a constant state of repentance and mortification of sin. But he is your Lord. You love him. Do you believe in Jesus If he is, he won't merely be a footnote in your life. He will be your everything. And you will seek, however imperfectly, to worship and to obey him in your life. Not because you can earn your salvation, but because Christ has already earned it. And you love him. And you're full of gratitude toward him. If you believe Jesus has lived and died and risen again for your sins then the orientation of your life is directed toward him. It's a life of faith, a life of growing and loving and grateful obedience to Christ. We're responding to or even anticipating questions about the veracity of Jesus' bodily resurrection. In verses 5 through 8, Paul references several post-resurrection appearances. Look with me there at verses 5 through 8. Notice there that he appeared to Peter. He appeared to Peter. That's Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom, Paul writes, are still alive. If you want to know if Jesus is alive, go ask the ones who are still alive that saw him. There are lots of them. They're still around 30 years later. Though some have fallen asleep, his metaphor for death. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. Dear ones, Paul is basically saying this. Those of you who may doubt or even deny the historic bodily resurrection of Christ, you should go speak with the hundreds of witnesses who saw him, heard him, spoke with him, touched him, and even ate with him after his resurrection. Is Jesus alive? Yes, I had fish with him after he raised, was raised from the dead. Is he alive? Yes, I heard him speaking of the kingdom, the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Yes, he's alive. The resurrection of Jesus is not an emotional vision or a collective hallucination, as some have taught. It's a historical fact, a fact upon which the church was founded and continues to be founded to this very day. Jesus is risen. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So that's the preeminent message of the gospel. Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And we hopefully can see now why it's so important that Paul reminded them of this gospel, which brings us to this gospel refresher in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. This gospel refresher. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And as I mentioned earlier, there were many in the church in Corinth who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They forgot this truth. And we too slip back into old patterns of thinking and old ways of living, don't we? We get sucked back into the mindset of the world. And we get reprogrammed by neighbors and coworkers and things we watch on YouTube. And we need to be brought back to the gospel. To be reminded of God's love for us. Of his truth, though so many are against it. Think about Again, the crazy absurdities that are being pushed in our culture and people are nodding and agreeing and, and uh, people are advertising their products with uh, the wildest of, of ideologies and, and people are just sort of going along with it and, 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 and this kind of mindless credulity. And yet we as Christians can sometimes be sort of seduced into the culture's thoughts and ideas. And it so often happens because we take our eyes off Christ. Also, we become unacquainted with God's mercies and blessings. John Owen, in his Communion with God, published in 1657, he writes something very insightful. He says this, quote, unacquaintedness with our mercies and our privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. 
In other words, because we let the gospel go out of our sights, we grow cold and our affections grow cold and we get into spiritual trouble. But when our hearts are taken up with God's love in Christ, we find ourselves turning from sin. You see, it's not that we need more law to make us better Christians. We need gospel. The law is a guide for the Christian life, but there's no power in the law. If you go after this sermon and make yourself 25 rules for how you're going to be a better Christian, it would pale and have really no power in comparison to you looking to Christ, the resurrected Christ, and meditating on what He has done for you. And so let me ask you this. Are you holding fast to the gospel? Are you holding fast to Christ? Paul mentions at the beginning, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. And if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Some of the, those in Corinth were believing in vain. They weren't holding fast. So we have to ask ourselves, are we holding fast? There's good news. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break. So let us repent of becoming unacquainted with our privileges in Christ and of our reflection upon the gospel. Let us repent for our turning to the world for pleasure and contentment and meaning and return to communion with God. This leads us to our final point, a gospel messenger. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul describes himself here uh, as one who is ectroma. Ectroma, it's a Greek word that means miscarriage or abortion. This negative moniker may have been given to him by his critics, communicating that he was ill-timed in his apostleship, outside the normal process of becoming an apostle, or, or had no right or authority in the church. So Paul takes this description to reinforce that what he is communicating to them is not about him. It's about Christ. He says, yes, you're right, I am unworthy. I, I persecuted the church. I approved of Stephen's persecution. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And by His grace, what I am is not in vain. By God's grace, I've worked harder than all the apostles. And it really doesn't matter who you heard the gospel from. We preached and you believed. That's what's ultimately important. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is not defensive here, though he defends his authority as an apostle. His response to those who are attacking his position is humble. He is self-deprecating. He wants to exalt Christ and the gospel and not himself, and so he doesn't defend himself per se. Here we have a powerful example. To all gospel ministers, to make Christ and his gospel the point of their ministry and not themselves, it's also an example to all believers that we would say with Paul that we too are unworthy beneficiaries of the grace of God. That by His grace we've been saved. 
And in his strength, we are working to glorify his name. Well, let us conclude, dear ones. This creedal-like text is foundational for the Christian faith. I could stand up here this morning and preach a 15-minute sermon with three or four Reader's Digest stories that would make you laugh and be entertaining, but there's nothing more important for us to meditate on this morning than the fact, the historical fact, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This resurrection of Christ is the inauguration of the new age, a new beginning, a new life in the spirit, one that we experience right now in part, but we'll know in full at the consummation at the return of Christ. And so, beloved, I want to encourage you yet again to believe in him, to be found in him, to abide in him. Outside of him, you are still in your sin and under God's judgment and condemnation. But in Christ, you are forgiven. You've been made alive. And those who are in Christ at His coming will be raised from the dead and ushered into eternal glory. And so, dear one, in this life, you have nothing to fear. Do not fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can send both body and soul into hell, our Lord says. Death for the Christian is just a passageway to glory. And as Paul concludes this marvelous chapter, he writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes with this glorious exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, dear Christian, is not in vain. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Let us pray. Our blessed God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is risen from the dead and that in him we are risen and forgiven of all of our sins and made your sons and daughters and have the first fruits of the resurrection in us so that one day, When Christ returns, our soul will meet our body and we will be ushered into everlasting life in your presence. Beholding the glory of Christ and his nail-scarred hands and the wound in his side and in his feet. Wounds of love for us that we will dwell on and 
glory in and boast in for all of eternity. Oh God, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ. And may you receive all the glory now as we sing your praise and live by faith. We pray in Jesus.